Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Mo speaking, and I'm really glad you could join me as this time we get to hear from four founders of tech companies. And this was part of an event held for Tech Week called Real Founders Stories Using Tech for Positive Impact. You're going to get to hear from the founders of three different tech startups who each are at different stages of the journey. So this ranges from Elliot of Throughline, who's just raised some capital, Jack and Chris from Komodo, who raised last year and are really in the middle of their growth phase, and Hannah, who just sold her business, Indigo and Iris. We thought it'd be great to assemble founders like this at different stages of their journey so we could really hear some real stories about what it's like to be a founder. And a shout out to Jack and Chris because the idea for this session actually originated at a lunch that we were having with them last year. And the idea is simple. We often hear about this sort of glitzy, glamorous side of raising capital and being involved in a startup. But what about the other side, the bits that you don't actually hear about? How do you deal with the difficult times? And what advice would they give to themselves if they could start over? I really hope you enjoy this session, and my thanks to Aislinn Malloy, who helped a huge amount with shaping what this session would be, as well as Emma Hayes, Sophie Tremion, and Michael Barai from our impact-focused team at Perryfield Lawyers. And a lot of you know me as the voice of Seeds Podcast, but I'm actually actively helping people to raise capital for their businesses. And I didn't say it until the very end of the recording, but we've just released a free resource for founders, which is called the Capital Raising Guide. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you enjoy this, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog? Because this is episode 303, and normally we're interviewing one person about their life story and what's brought them to do what they do today. Now let's get straight into this discussion. Hey, look, it's really great to see lots of you joining this session today. And we've had lots of people sign up, but at the last minute are not able to make it. So we know that some of you are watching this online afterwards. Um, and we're really great, grateful for everybody who's here, in particular um, to Chris and Hannah, Jack and Elliot, who are going to be sharing with us some real founder stories. So my name is Stephen Moe, and I'm a partner at Perryfield Lawyers. And in that role, we often come across people who are raising money, capital raising, and they're on this journey of being founders. And often we hear the glitzy side of the story. The headline is, I just raised a million dollars. I just raised $2 million. But we don't often hear some of the real conversations about what it's like to be a founder. And that's a problem because too often um, we aren't realistic about expectations. And we've seen even in the last year that this has led to burnouts it's led to um, some really awful situations. So we thought, actually, we need to help to remedy this by having more open conversations and um, starting that by this example. Um, so it's really great to have you here. Um, I'm here with my colleague, Aislinn. So do you want to introduce yeah, yourself? So hi, everyone. My name is Aislinn. Uh, I'm also a senior solicitor here at Perryfield Lawyers. Um, and so, yeah, I, I work alongside Stephen and help a lot in the area of startups, um, whether it's, you know, right from the really early stages or when they're starting to look at um, raising money as well. Um, I just love being part of that journey. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So we're going to get right into it. Um, and what we thought we'd do is ask each of the founders that are on the call to share just really briefly a little bit of 
their story or, or the organization that they're involved in. Um, and so we're going to start with you, Elliot, if you could just give us a little thumbnail on um, what you've been involved in and what stage you're at. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, kia ora tato. Um, my name is Elliot. Uh, I'm, I'm the founder of a company called Throughline, um, and we are on a mission to ease emotional crisis for people on global internet platforms. Oh, we've got some new people popping in. That's cool. Uh, and um, I'm building this because I had an experience a few years ago um, where I was in an emergency department with a young person who had tried to take their life um, and her boyfriend was there and he showed me, you know, on her phone what um, he, he found when, you know, he found her and um, at the top uh, she was logged into Tumblr and um, there was a suicide note and it really struck me that when this young person went to take their life, she shouldn't tell me or she shouldn't tell a counsellor or a boyfriend she told the internet. Uh, and so um, that was a number of years ago. And so I've been on a, a mission since then to, I guess, try and build the most effective scalable solution to help that young person in, um, in West Auckland, but also to do the same for people all around the world. And I've had quite, I guess, a windy journey into um, startup land. So um, I've worked most of my life in the nonprofit. Um, I started a nonprofit uh, called Live for Tomorrow, which I, um, I ran for a couple of years did the Startmate Accelerator um, in the middle of last year, and then off the back of that, um, decided to found this company, Throughline, um, in December. So we're super young, um, and yeah, we just closed around, um, uh, which is you know not formally announced, but now you all know. Uh, and yeah, excited to I guess be on um, be on this kind of early stage of the journey of um, yeah hunting down customers and. Um, building out our team and um, yeah, taking us from zero to one. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Elliot. And I think um, one of the themes that you're going to see through each of our speakers is that, and we gave it a subheading, which is tech for good. Um, and I think each of them represents uh, founders who are actually using technology and actually having a positive impact. And Elliot, you, in a way, you're, you're here to represent that beginning of the founder journey because it is all relatively fresh in terms of the raise that's just happened. So we'll just move quickly over to, to Chris and Jack. Can you give us a, a description of, of what you both are involved in? Yeah, no, thank, thanks for that. And um, yeah, I can start and Jack will take over a little bit as well. But um, yeah, so brilliant to be a part of this today. Um, and as Stephen said, so I'm Chris, I'm one of the two co-founders. Um, I claim I'm the better half of the co-founding team, but I'm sure Jack will claim the otherwise. Um, so yeah, from Komodo, at Komodo, we basically provide student well-being software for schools. That's a very quick top-line description, but the way I phrase it is something very different, is that what we are providing is a student empowerment platform. And there's two parts of that and what we're working with schools on. Um, so the first part of that is enabling students to have that self-learning, that organic opportunity to understand their well-being. It's something that I think we see time and time again that students don't always understand. And it's a little bit of, um, sometimes it can be quite fluffy, but actually we're trying to really give them a clear insight into what does that mean for themselves? How does that impact their ability to progress in life um, and set themselves up really positively for later life as well, which aligns very nicely to what Elliot was speaking about as well, is really trying to enable and empower those students. And the second half of that, student empowerment side is really connecting those students and giving them a voice whenever they need it 
to both the school, but more importantly, to the school staff. Again, something that we see students time and time again, not having regular opportunities to do so, and more importantly, the right methods to do so. Um, so yeah, really for us, we're trying to support the schools and empower those staff with data to actually have an understanding of what is taking place in the schools, what is taking place with each student and their well-being, because it is so varied and so different. Um, so yeah, for myself, as I act as the CEO um, within Komodo, so predominantly on the growth side of the business, been over here in New Zealand for five years, originally to do a PhD. Um, that is not what I ended up doing, um, completely the opposite of what I'd ever imagined I'd be doing. And yeah, we've been fortunate in terms of our journey and maybe I'll pass over to Jack to do an introduction and he can give a brief overlay of where we're at in terms of the stage. Uh, yeah, hi everyone. Um, thanks for having us today. Uh, as Chris said, I'm Jack. I would definitely say that I'm uh, the better half of the founding duo. Um, in a more operational sense, uh, I suppose Chris kind of spoke there about handling sort of customer and growth, um, whereas I handle our product side of things. So just getting sort of um, customer or problem, I suppose, as close to solution as possible um, and making sure that we're building something obviously that is is solving those key pain points for our, for our customer base, which um, is primarily sort of secondary schools, secondary independent schools. And now the real big growth market for us at the moment is international schools. So um, we started sort of building here in the sort of New Zealand market. Um, we've picked up quite a few schools in Australia, um, but for us now that's sort of expanded somewhat and we're now sort of working with schools um, in Japan, uh, over in Europe, um, as well as sort of Southeast Asia um, and the Middle East as well is now starting to um, pick up a bit as well. So um, yeah, that's kind of that. I think one thing to probably touch on, because I know the topic of this conversation um, is probably more about sort of like hardship or difficulties, should probably talk about um, what Komodo looked like previously. So we didn't originally start in the school wellbeing space. We started in the high performance sport space. Um, so we set out to build an athlete monitoring platform um, so that we could basically help coaches improve athlete performance, but also to mitigate injury. Um, just in sort of building a bit of a customer base throughout 2019, um, we ended up working with a considerable number of school sports departments. Um, and they were somewhat interested in the workload side of things, but they were really interested in our concept of well-being monitoring. Um, so actually being able to sort of regularly uh, sort of touch base with their athletes and, and get insight into how they were coping sort of in their sporting context, but also what was influencing their performances outside of that. Um, and our schools in particular were really interested because it gave them a layer of visibility they'd never had before. Um, I think schools do a tremendous job of putting initiatives in place um, and, you know, going above and beyond to make sure that students are happy and safe within that school environment. But a lot of it is guesswork. Um, there's not a whole heap of accuracy. So for us, we that's the layer we bring. Um, and obviously driving conversations that wouldn't usually occur, stopping students that potentially might fall through the cracks. Um, it became a huge selling point, And that's sort of how the school wide and our pivot into this specific space came about is more and more schools sort of wanted us to move in that direction. The rest of the school wanted to use the product outside of the sporting context. Um, and that led us to sort of completely retweak the product and, and pivot into the industry that we now sit in. That's great. That's really good overview. Thank you. And I can endorse the, um, the pivoting that you guys have done because I've seen the dance of this way and that way and finding your sweet spot. It's been really awesome. I remember meeting you, Chris, the first time 
And I think you were a PhD student at that time exploring like, what, what could this be? What might it mean? <laughs> so it's, it's um, yeah. yeah, it's really fun to see how far you've come. So in a way you're representing the founders who've now you've gone out, you've raised some money and now you're actually, you've got your own office space, you know, you're employing a team, you're developing a, developing a product. You know, I saw on LinkedIn the other day, you were over, or one of your representatives was in, in Europe, you know, at a trade show talking, raising the awareness. So you're representing that sort of into the journey stage, um, which is great. And um, Elliot suggested that we vote on who's the better half uh, in the chat. So <laughs> that reminds me though, um, if any of you have questions, um, we would love to hear your questions. So if you can do that in the chat as people are talking, um, and we're about to get into the substantive part, but you can drop your comments in the chat and we will definitely be watching that as we go. Um, but last, um, Hannah, we'd love to hear from you because you represent somebody who has now exited the startup. So um, can you give us a little bit of background? Thank you. Sure. So yeah, I'm Hannah Duda. I live in Christchurch. I have lived here my whole life, um, apart from a very small stint um, in Wellington at the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. So uh, I studied here in Christchurch at Canterbury. I did law and accounting. Um, and while I was studying, I discovered a real passion for social enterprise and doing good business. Um, and I got involved in Entree, Centre for Entrepreneurship, which we've got some alumni here, which is cool. Um, and yeah, it just really made me realize when I left uni, I wanted to do that. So I co-founded a company called Little Yellow Bird. We were an ethical, um, sustainable clothing company. Our supply chain was in India, and we uh, redistributed our profits back into those communities. Um, after I left Little Yellow Bird, I was, uh, and sorry, with Little Yellow Bird, we went through a Lightning Lab program. Um, we entered Webstock and won that competition. So we had quite a lot of um involvement in that kind of scene of startup accelerators and stuff. Um, after Little Yellow Bird, I co-founded Indigon Iris. Uh, this was about 2017. Um, so Indigon Iris is a beauty brand who gave a damn, uh, still does. I just don't own it anymore. Um, and we made products in Italy and sold them in uh, New Zealand, mainly in Australia. Um, we raised money privately, uh, about 75K. We did a Kickstarter, raised about 120 and then we did another pledge me uh, 55k um, that we raised. So that was to get our products out onto the market. So we had five products, um, a mascara and lipsticks, and we distributed our profits to two different charities, Fred Hollows and uh, Dress for Success. And yeah, basically, um, I ran a product company for four and a half years. And um, product companies are a different beast. Um, when I talk product company, obviously not a tech product, like a physical, here's a product, a makeup um, product or a t-shirt. Um, and raising money for that is interesting. So obviously we were female founders, which automatically puts us on a back foot, unfortunately. And we had a product company, not a tech potential unicorn um, could grow overnight company. So it was really interesting going through that process. Um, but yes, I did sell the company last year in December um, and have entered the real world, which I keep saying the real world, the non uh, kind of running my own business world where I have a boss and someone pays my bills, which is um, actually great <laughs> at the moment. Um, but yeah, I'm very kind of happy to just talk about that quite openly. I'm very, um, yeah, an open back book of how that all went. So yeah, happy to be here. That's great. Thank you. Oh, 
Oh, we have a fire alarm. Oh, no. <laughs> there we go. The test is done. <laughs> Just keeping us on our toes here. Um, yeah, well, that's great. Thank you so much, Hannah. And it's it's great to have such a diverse um, variety of founders and quite different things that each of you are doing. So um, we're really pleased to have each of you sharing today. Um, what we'd love to do is ask you a couple of questions. So I'm going to lead off with a question, then Aislinn's going to jump in with a question. Um, Elliot, we'd like to start with you. Um, you. You've been given a time machine. What are you going back in time to tell yourself maybe a year ago? Um, and, and bearing in mind, this is the real founder's stories. And so maybe what's your biggest learning? What's a piece of advice that you might have for somebody who's you know, starting out on the entrepreneurial journey? Uh, I'd, put, I'd say three things. Um, number one, I learned a lot when we raised our round that um, like in, investors are excited about the long term. Um, and so, you know, you'll have more, and I don't know if, um, you know, the others can kind of vouch for this, but you'll kind of have more success in raising if you actually paint the picture of like, think of like A to Z being a journey, paint the picture of like what Z looks like, like the, you know, the, the fullness of your vision um, of the world that you want to create and then explain why like you might be at A, then explain the logic of why like A through C or D now is the right decision to make um, that will be a part of that journey to help get you to Z. Um, and that was like a tweak that we changed kind of like early in our, fund, in our fundraising journey that I think was quite significant because up to that point in time, I'd been going like, oh, okay, I'll like, I'll tell you like ABC and then we'll figure out like what DEF looks like or whatever. Um, we're actually, uh, yeah, I found investors got more excited when they actually were able to kind of get on board with the long-term vision. And I feel like if I'd done that earlier, it's almost just boldness, you know, like if I, if I had, had someone to encourage me to do that earlier. Um, the second thing is, um, just get good people around you. Like, you know, if you, if you're starting something, then you're like a true believer in the thing, you know, like, um, you think about it in the shower, you wake up at 4am and think about it like I did today. Like it's just, it's, it's always with you. It's this little baby that you're birthing and, um, you know, you need other people that even though they may not be caring for it, like you are, kind of recognize that you care for it and, you know, will have conversations or support you. Um, yeah, I think the emotional journey can sometimes be the most challenging part. Um, and the, then the third thing I'd say is that, um, you know, I'm not a technical founder, so I'm kind of more of kind of a, um, I guess, product side um, uh, of things. So, like, you know, just un understanding what the customer need is and making sure that we're solving that. But, you know, I don't write code. I think in hindsight, um, if I had thought more critically about that, I would have I would have hunted earlier to look for someone that you know would have been willing to dive in, um, yeah, dive in early and and um, and and help with the technical side of things because we were using kind of contractors and that type of thing. But just um, it meant our pace wasn't as as um, quick as it could have been. Um, yeah, so those are three things I think I would do differently. That's awesome. Do you want to move on to the next? Yeah, sure. So um, 
Chris and Jack, obviously you've had quite a roller coaster with, you know, where you started and where you are now, just in terms of, you know, the work you're doing, the people that are involved, um, everything's kind of changed quite significantly. When you look back on the journey that you've had, do you feel like there are particular things that you just wish you'd known from the beginning or just, you know, you feel like there are things that just nobody told me about this, you know, if if only they'd told us. um, Yeah. Are you able to speak to that? Yeah, I can. I'll I'll go at it first. I know Jack has probably his own opinion on this as well. Um, I think for me, just thinking back to where we started, and I think you summed it up actually quite nicely at the start, Stephen, talking about. I think when we're presented with the opportunity of startups, it is presented as glitz and glamour, and actually there is a lot of hard work that goes behind the scenes. But I think more importantly, and I think to one of Elliot's points he made there is, you know, you want to paint this big picture, but it's also about having really clear hyper-focus target at the beginning, you know, and and in particular with your market. And it's interesting because one of the things I think we did when we first started with Komodo, as Jack was sharing about our sport journey, is I think we had, a, a in our opinions, a cool product, but not really a problem. We were the classic vitamin um, over being a painkiller. And then what's happened over time and for our natural journeys and our pivot is we've definitely transitioned into this business position where we are a genuine painkiller to a real critical problem um, in the world to date. So I think really what I would say is just thinking thinking back is remove the glitz and glamour, focus, completely, utterly focus on the clear problem statements. And if you can solve that, then everything else comes from that. Um, Jack, would, would you add something to that? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's probably a big one. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily something we didn't know. We, we did. I think it was more just our inexperience. Like, I think what Chris is kind of essentially saying is we started with a solution and then tried to find a problem. Um, we always describe it in the same way of we set out to build an athlete monitoring platform. Um, and I think that showed in our market of customers. Like We really struggled to pinpoint our market and where we were going to play. So by the time we actually started pivoting out of the space, we had uh, sort of top level uh, professional clubs over in Europe uh, as customers right through to your local hockey club, like down the road here um, and everything in between. Uh, so it was quite vast. And I think, again, that I think we found some problems along the way, but um, we, we definitely didn't sort of start with it and really sort of work that out first. Um, the other thing I would say, which I, I want to add a disclaimer with this in that, you know, if you're looking to start, a startup or create a business you don't have to raise it depends on your type of business it depends on your ambitions as well it's not something you have to do um chris and i have fairly big ambitions or like in terms of what we want to achieve it's very much on a global scale um chris and i aren't interested in in 20 years time us turning around and komodo is known as a, a great like household name in in edtech here in new zealand um we we sort of firmly believe in that global from day one um and you know we want to get out and we want to be the number one player in this space you know with our our brand and product um so therefore i think one of the things i'm going to say now is we've done essentially three capital raises in our time um the first two were really small uh one was a friends and family raise the other one was sort of a pre-seed um with some sort of seed investors and Full, full caveat, we love all of our investors. We don't have a single one that hasn't added value um, and hasn't been a, a, an incredible supporter. But I think in some ways we were probably quite eager to raise. And I think in some ways we probably 
maybe had a round too many, but also quite early. Um, and I don't think there's, I don't think there's a set time that you have to have, um, uh, or, or like what that timeline should look like. But yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we, we probably could have plugged away a bit harder and, and really worked out to get to a certain yeah. level of our traction um, before sort of doing the raises that we did early on. Thank you. Um, and then finally, Hannah, obviously you've got a slightly different um, experience to the others or a different product that you had. Um, I mean, you know, now that you have exited and looking back on, on the process, I mean, what what's changed for you? Do you still, I mean, are you glad you did it? Um, are you, you know, glad for the experience? What, what are your thoughts there? Um, yeah, I definitely am glad I did it. I think um, the whole entrepreneurial journey that I had was amazing and taught me so much. And I guess I was quite freaked out to enter, to, to leave because I wasn't sure if my skills would be transferable to the, I need to stop saying the real world, the like a normal world. Um, and that was quite scary, but I realized very quickly that usually founders who have done what we've done, not to like toot my own horn, but we are like, you know, this is like a walk in the park for me now. Like I, you know, what I had to go through to write, to like start two companies and to run a whole business myself. Like I didn't have any staff. I had like a few contractors and stuff, but it was basically just me. Um, it's hugely transferable. And um, yeah, so I, I'm glad that I, but it didn't, it really took me to exit and to f- figure that out to even know that. So um, I had to kind of go through that process to realize that. Um, but yeah, I definitely am glad I did it. And looking back, there are definitely um, a lot of learnings and I would definitely do things way differently there. I mean, just from what, um, even what Jack just said about how you don't have to raise, I think knowing what type of company you want to be early on is important. And of course, we all originally probably think global, you know, for Bonnie and I, we went to New York Fashion Week. We got this epic opportunity to go over there and be kind of part of that world. We visited Clinique, Estee Lauder, like, um, just like crazy big brands. They were Their offices were in the World Trade Center. Like we just got this huge kind of awesome opportunity. And we came back from that American trip and we're like, we do not want to be that. Like that, that was not us at all. We didn't want to be in that world. We're not, um, you know, the makeup world is a beast, like every, you know, fashion industry and things like that. And we kind of came home and said, actually, we're quite happy if we are a well-known name in New Zealand and Australia and we sell product and donate profits. Like like the whole purpose of why I was even involved was because I wanted to do good and help charities. So it was quite cool to have that experience and come back and go, well, we're actually quite happy not to be that, which is why our numbers of what we raised were, you know, in the kind of hundreds of thousands rather than the the millions um, because we only had that kind of desire. So, of course, no one's going to give us a million dollars to to just launch a makeup brand in New Zealand. So yeah, when I look back, I'm so glad I had that experience. And I always, I still go back to the university and talk to the Center for Entrepreneurship students and just say like, now is the time to do it. Like I, I've hit 30, I've got my house now, I've got a dog, I've got my, you know, and if I tried to start a business now, I would be so much more freaked out, even with all my knowledge that I have, not, not to put anyone off that's in the audience that's also got those things. But when you're, when you're younger and you have less kind of responsibilities, not making money for three weeks is not as scary when you have like a mortgage and things. So I'm, I do not regret it at all. And I hope, you know, maybe the future is, I might have, you know, a business in the future or who knows what's going to happen. I haven't ruled out that side of my life. But, um, yeah, I definitely am glad that I had that experience. 
That's awesome. Well, it's great to hear from each of you. And reminder to people who are watching and listening, you can put questions in the chat. And so now's your chance because we'll be looking at those shortly. Um, it strikes me, and obviously this is kind of on purpose because we're the ones who asked you to be here, that each of you really have a vision um, for your businesses, which was more than how much profit can I make? Um, and so I'm just curious to dive a little bit deeper on that. Um, as, as at least those who are the um, presenters know, I, I do a lot of writing in the, in the area of reimagining business. Like what could business be? What could we do if we really understood impact and purpose and built it into our businesses? But I think when you start talking in that way, people might say, well, it's going to be really hard to convince investors to come on board if we're talking about the impact we're going to have. You know, aren't investors just going to be worried about like the profit and the forecast and backing the next insert big name here? <laughs> um, so could I, I'll open it up to any of you to, to share on that. I'm, I'm just curious for your thoughts, because that strikes me as something that is a little bit distinctive about this particular panel. Yeah, I, I'm happy to jump in first. I think the way I perceive it is that profits and money is a byproduct by focusing first on what's the genuine impact in terms of the problem you're trying to solve. Because any, for, for example, with Komodo, you know, we, yeah, we can talk to many VCs and many VCs are interested in us because of the fact we're focused on the problem and, and we have a, a really deep connection to firstly what our customers are going through. So the schools, those students, parents, teachers, that whole ecosystem. And I think that drives everything we do. You know, if, if we don't solve the problems properly, then everything else will just not work. And if you put profit and numbers and all these other cool glitzy pieces first, I think people get caught on that side. So for us, it's very much about, right, well, what is the true problem we are trying to solve here? What's the true impact we can actually have right now in two years time, in 20 years time, in 50 years time? Um, so I think that's the, the thing I've learned over time, that it's more about really assessing customer problems and actually having a genuine care about customer love. You know, customer love and people actually wanting your product comes from you again, understanding the problem, just listening to them and being really genuine about it. So I think that's definitely what I've learned over the last couple of years in particular, probably more so, especially given our previous, uh, yeah, I suppose, journey in the sporting world and where we didn't really have a market, weren't really solving the problem well um to, to the day i think that's probably been a big change for us in a way i see it especially with investors now and i think actually also to that point is it's really interesting um talking to vcs and different investors i think they genuinely care about impact and it's because they know that if the impact and the problems aren't solved properly there is no going to be not going to be a return for their fund they're not going to get their billion dollar exit plus um you have to get this first piece right to have any chance of getting towards the end. Um, yeah, I don't know if anyone else wants to add to that point, but that would be my perspective at least. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's 100% true. Everything, I believe what you just said. Um, I think one issue, I think, from when social enterprise and doing business for good started to become, you know, more than just a buzzword is, um, which I know, Stephen, you all about this, but the structure of the company for what we did, for example, for Little Yo Bird and for Indigo Naris, 
just in our heads, we wanted to have impact and we saw that that meant we have to give our profits away. Um, when, I'm, when I look back, I think it's actually quite a flawed model. Um, that's the first time I've publicly said that. But, um, you know, there's, there's so much more about businesses and doing good than just like giving your profits away. And of course, investors aren't going to go, oh, great, yeah, we're happy to do that. But if you look at the businesses um, like Komodo, um, you know, you're, what you're doing is the impact. So I think the business needs to make sure that what, you know, the product you're creating is actually the thing that's having the positive impact. I think just tagging on like, oh, we give 10% of our profits is just, that's just not going to have an impact at all and as a, as a flawed model in my mind. So if I could go back, uh, Little Yellow Bird was quite good, actually. We Our supply chains was ethical. Our cotton was organic. We were creating uniforms and clothing that was in itself having a positive impact and the profit sharing was a nice to have whereas with Indigo and Iris you know we were still I really struggled and this is probably why I exited with the fact that we're still creating a consumer good um the packaging was like kind of recyclable it was vegan it was cruelty free the products were ethically sourced but you know there was still some issues there around impact that I really struggled with myself so I think when it comes to giving you know I was about to say give any shit. Um, if it's coming when it comes to having an impact and caring, it really needs to be a part of your core, what you're doing, your business, not just, oh, we do this on the side. Um, and if you start a company like that, it's so much easier to continue it as you scale. If you kind of go, oh, once we're making a million dollars revenue, then we'll start to, you know, care. It's just not going to be able to be possible and it will be very hard to do so. So yeah, I think um how you structure your business and how you want to do good really, you know, is dependent on how you structure. Mm. That's really good. And I, I really like that. And as you know, this is kind of the mantra for me as well is it's not just about the slogan. It's not social washing or greenwashing. You have to actually genuinely incorporate some of these principles within your business, but you're absolutely right. If it's, if it's not just a slogan and actually the thing that you're doing or creating is having a positive impact, then that's having true, you know, moving the dial sort of movement. How about how about for you? Oh, one Jack. Thing, you sorry, one thing I was just going to add to that is I completely agree with with what Hannah just said, and I think um, I, I think the things a lot of people can sometimes we certainly experience this. Maybe it's a Christchurch thing in the social enterprise scene that came out here, but I think a lot of people are sort of scared to say that you know they have an interest or a desire to make money. And you know you're a you're a business. You're not you're not like a, you're a charity or you're not a registered social enterprise. Um, I think we are really really lucky, and it's through nothing that Chris and I have done. It's it's our customers that have obviously pulled us in this direction. But we're really lucky to be solving a true problem, and it's a massive one that's experienced across the globe. Um, but Chris and I will very proudly put our hands up and, and honestly say we do care about money and and we want to make some money out of this. Like. That's obviously a part of it as well. Um, I also want to to do well and and you know get a return for our investors. Um, you know they've backed us as well. So it, it's I think sometimes you know people feel like you can't do both. You you definitely can. And and I think one of the cool things is the more money that we make, the more we can put that back into improving the product. The more we can invest in really great team members that are going to help us solve this global problem. Um, and I think Hannah hit the nail on the head. You know. If you're these, I think you see big corporate companies nowadays that like we've now started getting to a level where we're making so much money, we can now start, you know, giving 5% to, you know, this charity or another. Um, they haven't had that embedded right from the start. That's not a part of their culture. That's not a part of their values. That's not a part of their mission. Um, you've got to have it right at the start. Um, but yeah, money, making money alongside it. And a lot of it does definitely help go a long way to solve that problem as well. 
Yeah, that's great. Well, I know um, some of the people on the call are, are like the type of people who go out and look for startups. So we'll have to do another call with them at some point and see, you know, what are you looking for when you come to a startup? What are you, you know, what are you weighing up when you look at a founder and when you look at the mission and you look at the need and, and that type of thing. But yeah, I just want to echo what you're each saying. It's, it's really good. Elliot, have you got any thoughts? Because you, you actually represent an even additional case study having come from not-for-profit worlds. And so you've been transitioned into this sort of for-profit world, but still retaining the essence of the, the values that you had. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say is just like totoko, what everyone else said. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had this ex- interesting experience where I spent, you know, like 15 or so years in the nonprofit, and um, the nonprofit expressly wants to make impact, um, but you also got to make money to make that impact. And so, um, like, how I would kind of view it if you were to kind of place a social enterprise lens on it is that it's like the the kind of business model is external to the impact model because in, in a nonprofit, your business model is actually funders. It's like, you know, the government or philanthropic bodies or donors or whatever. That's actually a business model. And so that means they like the kind of customer value you create um, is actually like a return to those people who give you money, you know. And so that means that kind of actually ultimately they make the rules. Um, and then you're off wanting to make a difference to your beneficiaries. But the difference that you're making, you can never have kind of full freedom in how you do that because actually you've got like the people that are giving you money kind of wanting it to be a certain way. And also it's just like not scalable. Like my fundamentally one of my experiences in the nonprofit was people being like, hey, here's $10,000 for a project, you know, for you to run over the next six months and we want it to change everything. Um, and also at the end of it, it should be sustainable and um, uh, you should not have to ask for any more money. Yeah, it's just, it's just very, I just found it very broken. Um, where I think like what I fundamentally agree with, you know, what all the others have said is now I've come to just like be a really big believer in like what I kind of call an integrated kind of model where, um, you know, which is what um, I guess all of us have, have tried to kind of build where you've got, a, you've got a business model, which is how you're generating revenue. And then within that circle, you have an impact model. Um, and so like when you make a dollar, your, your impact actually increases at the same rate. So it's like, think about, if, you know, if Komodo makes a sale, brings on a new school, then it's like, well, that's a whole whole bunch of students that are then using their product, a whole, you know, a whole bunch of teachers and administration that's getting, you know, a bunch of insight um, into those students, being able to support them. Chris and Jack, if you ever want to bring me on a sales call, happy to, uh, happy to. <laughs> um, yeah, like, like that, when they make money, like this impact actually steps forward at like the same rate. And so it's like, it's, yeah, it's integrated. And I'm like, I actually think that for me, like that's the most scalable way to make um, a significant impact in our world. And that's what I want to do. Like I think the nonprofit model still has its place, but I think the nonprofit model is kind of pretty good for like community driven local things that don't, don't have an intent to actually grow exponentially. They kind of, they want to move more in a cyclical um, kind of fashion of people come in and people kind of move through. Um, for whatever reason, I have more ambition than that. And so that's why I've kind of taken, um, I guess, more of this, I guess, startup venture-backed approach. 
That's great. Thank you, Elliot. Um, I say we've just got a question here in the in the chat. So Matthew's asked, um, what is the one thing you do to keep you going through the dark and doubting times? Does anyone want to start with, with that? I'll just um, say, I think it was quite clear from Chris and Jack and Elliot's answers, the passion that they have for what they're doing. And that to me is what does keep you going. I think one of the reasons I left Indigon RS is I am quite happy to say I really didn't care enough about makeup. Like makeup wasn't my thing. I'm not, you probably can tell, like I'm not like an into makeup person. And I think if you're not into what you're doing, obviously that sounds very obvious. I thought the, the impact that we were having would hopefully keep me going. And, and sometimes it really did. I'd go down to Dress for Success and hear the stories of what they were doing. And they'd say, you know, that money you donated last week has has changed a woman's life. So, of course, that was that was so amazing to hear. And that's what kept me going. But as I said earlier, that wasn't part of my whole model. And I realized, you know, it wasn't keeping me going. Um but if your business has a purpose other than making money, money is so important, as, as Jack and Chris have said, it is what you need to keep going. But if you're just making money and you have a dark time, it's really hard, I think, to, to push through unless you have more of a purpose, whether that's helping school children or in the mental health space or just even, you know, whatever it is. I think you need to have more of a purpose and, and really care about your product and and um that will hopefully be able to keep you going and make sure you surround yourself with good people who can who understand what you're going through as well. Yeah, I, I would, um, my answer is going to be slightly different. Um, I'm actually going to say one of the biggest things that helps me is genuinely having a co-founder. Um, I can wholeheartedly say that having someone else who spirals as similar to yourself at the, is very, very um, advantageous, I would say. And, That's so and, cute. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, like, oh. I, I do not spiral. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, I, I genuinely think one of the strengths that we have at Komodo in terms of a founding team is the self, as ourselves in, in the sense that I know that I'm a little bit more of the over-optimistic type where Jack is more of our realistic um, framework, I would say, to Komodo. But I think that balances us out. And so when you do have those really dark times you just can genuinely actually have someone who understands what you're going through very directly and maybe this is a chucked around term with founders but it does feel quite lonely when you're a founder that is for sure um and only other founders really get it and it's not any type of big-headed statement it is just so different to explain i even think to you know my friends that aren't in startups and trying to explain what i do it's it's it is tough so having someone else there i think Hannah's point, right? Having the right people around you is so important. And whether that be a, a co-founder, whether that be the right investors, advisors, supporters, um, you know, I think that really does help. Um, Jack, would you half agree with that or fully agree? Yeah, well, I definitely don't spiral. I disagree there. Not at all. Never. Um, no, I agree with that. I would, I would just say we get asked this a lot. Do you need multiple founders? And the answer is no. Um, I think, you know, the the proof is there that you get loads of founders. You know, I wouldn't even be surprised if the majority of successful founders are, are single founders, but um, yeah, it, it is helpful. I agree with what, um, first of all, I think Hannah's response was actually probably the best uh, that anyone could have said. It didn't even spring to my mind, but having, if you're passionate about something, you don't realistically need anything else that will carry you through 
everything and if you're passionate about the problem you're solving um and then i suppose just to chris's point is that it is advantageous and i'd almost just go further than what chris has said in that it, it feels a bit i don't know if it feels arrogant or like exclusive but it is like being a founder is is particularly if like a high growth company it's it is a unique experience and it is hard right like I think I think my parents are proud of me, um, but and the, and I think they always will be. But they'll never truly understand. Or even my family, Chris mentioned friends. Like it is a hard thing to get across. Sometimes you get to a point it's a bad thing, but you end up like stop talking about it. You stop explaining because you're just worried that people aren't going to understand. But I think more to the point is, even other founders, you know, for myself and Chris, Chris is the only person on the planet that experiences and understands the exact things that I go through. Um, obviously we have, we have a, you know, a, a team that's growing now and we've got more team members, but, um, obviously there's still a lot that myself and Chris see and have to do that, that they don't see or experience. So, um, I think it is good to have someone to, you know, bounce ideas off of, and I wouldn't describe it as spiraling, but Chris and I do typically have this sort of like seesaw effect. Um, when, when one is like really down about something, uh, the other one pulls the other one back up again, which is which is uh, cool. We probably need to get to a point where it levels out eventually. Um, I think that's also just, you know, that sort of startup life and life as a founder is um, someone said this yesterday. I think it was James Powell of Dawn Aerospace. Um, and I think it's been widely used in the past is, you know, your line of trajectory isn't you start here and then you end here. It's as long as you are moving in that direction, that's great, but you're going to go up, down, up, down. And as long as you're progressing, it's fine. But Chris and I now have this thing where, if you like get into work on a Tuesday and there's this real big positive news, like, I don't know, it could be anything that you've made like a whole load more sales. Um, we've had progress with a partner or something. We celebrate that. And that's like, that's a great thing. And you feel that positive emotion, but then we also know that probably the next day or potentially the next week, you're going to have something that's going to counter that. Um, and it becomes somewhat predictable after a while, but, um, yeah, it's, it's good to have someone around you to bounce ideas off of and, and talk through that. But I, I think um, Hannah's point is excellent. As long as you have that passion for what you're doing, that is enough. That will always carry you through everything. Great. And Elliot, do you have anything to add? I agree with everything that's been said. The only thing I'd add is that I just think rhythm of life is quite important. Um, like we are not machines. Like we are, we are biological, you know, we need food, we need sleep, we need um rest um yeah we need to use different parts of our brains um i definitely have a tendency to view myself as a machine um and just to be kind of like you know inputs black box outputs um yeah but i think i just learned a lot in my life that like if i want to be doing this for a long time um then I, I need to hold hold a rhythm of life um, that kind of has some hard hard boundaries in it. Um, yeah, and so I've, I've found that really helpful. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much. I've, I've certainly taken some notes as we've been going, and that's been really helpful. And, and some of the things you've emphasized or articulated in ways that I hadn't heard done before. So I really appreciate your insights. Um, what we're going to be doing now is turning off the recording in a minute, and we're going to keep going for another 10 or a few minutes um, just to give the chance for um, 
unrecorded views to be expressed if they choose to. <laughs> um, so I'm going to pause the recording in a second. Um, stick around if you'd like to engage at, at that level as well. Um, this recording, it's going to become an episode of a, a passion project for me, which is Seeds Podcast. So just to give a little plug for that, um, it, it looks like that. It's in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all those places. And I've interviewed 302 people. Um, the interviews typically go for an hour and we're getting into depth with people. So this will become an episode of that, um, but also we'll put it, make it a YouTube video so people will be able to look back and see, because I know that there was lots of people signed up who weren't able to make it. Um, and yeah, we just want to say thank you to our speakers to, to kind of end this little section. Really appreciate your insights, Hannah, Chris, Jack, and Elliot. Um, it's been a pleasure to work with each of you on different aspects of what you've done. And part of that, just to say, is that we're, we're about to release this um, capital raising guide for founders. Um, and Chris, you don't know this yet, but your, your little quote you gave us is right there. <laughs> so um, we have learned a lot in the last um, while working with founders, you know, thinking through their issues from a legal perspective. Um, so that's been a really um, amazing journey to, to go with people. And so tried to condense everything that we've observed that would help founders and put it in this 20 pages. So I'll send around an email afterwards with the follow-up and there will be a link to that as well. And I'll put it in the chat um, as we finish off. But I'm just going to hit pause for now so that we can continue the conversations. But thanks everybody for joining. We do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris, Jack, Elliot, and Hannah. I know I really learned a lot from their perspectives and it was fascinating to hear them reflect on their journeys and what they wish that they'd known at the start. If you enjoyed this, then why not share it with one other person? It really helps to get positive messages out in the world. And also don't forget, there's heaps more content in the back catalog. And I've put some links in the show notes as well. So you might want to check those out too. And we are going to try to run these events from time to time. So if you'd like to get on our email list, then just drop me a line. Until next time. Mm -hmm.